Welcome everybody, good evening, thanks for coming tonight um, to the LSE. My name is Christina Musat, I'm a fellow here at the philosophy department at the LSE and I'm also the deputy director of the Forum for European Philosophy. I think we have our program. Um, and it's my pleasure to introduce Brian Christian to you tonight who um, has a really interesting background. He studied philosophy, um, computer science and poetry. So very versatile background and um, in 2009 he participated in the international Turing test, which um, some of my students out here will be familiar with the Turing test. Um, basically, it's a test devised by the mathematician Alan Turing to figure out when we could say that a machine is intelligent. And there's this international competition taking place in Britain, I think every year, is that right? Um, but basically, there, uh, there are um, human confederates in computers participating uh, in a chat with the judges, and the judges' task is to figure out whether they're talking to a human or to a computer. And he participated in this test as one of the human confederates and actually won the prize for the most human human. So there's a prize for the best computer program, there's also a prize for the most human human. And um, he's written a book about what it means to be human in the age of artificial intelligence, given all the exciting developments that we see uh, with the artificial intelligence and the sort of important role that computers really play in our lives. And um, he's going to give us a presentation on that topic tonight, which I look very much forward to. After the talk, um, you will have an opportunity to buy the book, to get the book signed. And um, as always, or as usual, in the forum events, what we'll do is we'll have Brian talk for um, maybe 50, 60 minutes, and then there'll be plenty of time, about half an hour, if not more, discussion with you um, and so I look forward to that and hand yeah. the word over to you. Great. Now uh, can people hear me okay if I talk at this volume? Do I need is that if we can think of songs technology might actually be better. Um, so uh, first of all, thanks so much to the LSC for the invitation to be here, and uh, thanks to you guys for coming. Um, so the the book, as Christina was explaining, uh, centers on this idea called the Turing test, um, and it goes back to the mathematician Alan Turing uh, at the beginning of the 1950s, who even as the computer was really in its infancy was already asking these really philosophical questions about uh, what, what the significance of these machines really was. Uh, specifically, could they think? Um, could we someday build a machine that could think? Um, and if we, if we could, uh, how would we know? And what Turing did was to put philosophy more or less to the side and say, well, what we're going to do is we're going to have a practical test. We're going to hold an actual experiment. Um, and as Christina was explaining, um, it basically revolves around a series of five-minute-long chat conversations. Um, the judges are trying to figure out if the messages that they're getting are coming from a real person or a computer program pretending to be a real person. Uh, Alan Turing's famous prediction was that by the year 2000, these computer programs would be fooling the judging panel about 30% of the time. And that as a result, we would 
come to think of machines as thinking. Now, this is one of the famous predictions of computer science that did not come to pass. Um, when Turing had originally proposed the test in 1950, it was really purely a hypothetical. The technology was nowhere near the point at which you could actually hold one of these tests. Um, but around the early 1990s, there started to be this feeling among the computer science community that perhaps we, in fact, had reached a point where we were ready to not only talk about the Turing test as an idea, but to literally get together and hold them. And it's around this point that a rogue American millionaire named Hugh Loebner enters the picture. Hugh Loebner is a roll-up portable disco dance floor salesman um, <laughs> who decided that he wanted to spend his proceeds on enshrining his name into the halls of science. And so he stepped up to finance the annual Turing test competition, which is known as the Loebner Prize. He's not a man of modesty. Um, and the Loebner Prize has, be, has been held every year since 1991. Um, but contrary to Turing's famous prediction, by the year 2000, even the best computer programs at the Loebner Prize we're lucky to fool one out of the panel of the judges into thinking that they were human. However, my ears really sort of perked up in the year 2008. The 2008 competition was held in Reading. And the great shock was that the top computer program had fooled three out of the 12 judge panel, uh, which of course is 25%, or just one vote shy of Turing's famous threshold. So the feeling among many at the time was that humanity had basically dodged the bullet on that one, that there had been sort of this, uh, this close shave for homo sapiens in the Turing test. Um, and there was, you know, a certain speculation that perhaps 2009, uh, the 2009 test, which was going to be held in Brighton, would be the year that computers finally sort of tipped the scales and, and crossed that threshold. And I have to say that when I was reading this news, my gut reaction to the thought that computers might finally sort of cross that mark was not on my watch. And so my, you know, the question that came up in my mind is that is there something that I can do personally uh, to sort of intercede on behalf of my fellow humans um, and get involved in the 2009 competition? Um, and so I, I began by getting in touch with Hugh Loebner himself, who sort of forwarded me onto the organizing committee. And before I knew it, my name was on what's called the Confederate roster. So you have the judges and the computer programs, and then you have these real people that are trying to persuade the judges that they are, in fact, humans. Um, and so I would be one of the four representatives of our species. Uh, taking part in that side of the contest, um, which I have to say is an extremely strange role to find yourself in, um, where you're going to be, in my case, you know, flying across the ocean simply to give a series of instant message conversations that are about five minutes long, in which your main goal is to persuade someone else that you are a human being. <laughs> um, it's an incredibly unusual position to find yourself in. Um, and 
at this point um, in the year, I had about six months before I would be going out there. And my feeling was that I, I really wanted to take this role as seriously as I possibly could. Uh, the, the contest has these two awards, um, as Christina was sort of alluding to <coughs> earlier. So each judge, um, because they don't know, of course, who they're talking to, at the end of each of their conversations, they assign a score that basically represents their confidence that they were talking to a person. So every year, the computer that brings home the highest score wins this prize called the Most Human Computer Award. And that, you know, there's a sort of a cash research grant associated with that for the programmers. Um, but I was, I was very intrigued to learn that there's this other rather strange award that goes to the real person who managed to attain the highest score in the contest which is called the Most Human Human Award. And so not only would I be kind of allied with my fellow Confederates in attempting to prevent these machines from passing the test, but we were also, in effect, competitors for this very bizarre and intriguing Most Human Human Award. Um, and so I was really interested to think about, you know, what, what is the significance of something like this? Um, you know, what what, at a very practical level, can I do to act human in the Turing test? Whatever that might mean. Um, and what relationship does a good Turing test strategy have to what it means to go through our actual human lives? And what I found was that there was, in fact, a surprising amount uh, that could sort of be carried over from, from the Turing test into everyday life. Um, so I should start, uh, one, one of the earliest most human humans was the wired columnist Charles Platt, who competed in the, in the early 90s. And when he was asked, you know, how did you do it? How did you distinguish yourself from your fellow uh, Confederates? His answer was, well, it's very simple. I was moody, irritable, and obnoxious. <laughs> um, everyone else in the test was extremely mild-mannered and polite, and so I, I stuck out. Um, and this, you know, struck me as being hilarious, but also kind of bleak, and at, at a deeper level, this real call to arms, which is, seriously, what does it mean to act human, and, and how can we, in fact, be the most human humans we can be? Um, and that process really took on a number of phases. I mean, for me, it was this real journey of trying to get to the bottom in six months, as, as far as I could try to get to the bottom of these questions. Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about what I learned from looking at how chatbots are actually built. And then I'll talk a little bit about what can be learned from looking at some of the dynamics of natural human conversation. Um, and in closing, we'll look <coughs> at some of the greater philosophical significance of some of these questions. But I think it's appropriate to start by looking at our competition which is chatbot software. So I think a good place to begin is with the 1997 competition. So I will, I'll, I'll begin with a transcript from the 1997 Turing test. Um, and I'll use the convention here of describing the text that the judge is seeing as remote, which is the word that they, that's the, the official term for it. and. Um, 
that way I don't have to get tangled up into using deciding whether I'm going to say he, she, or it, which will put you more in the position of the judge. So, remote. Hi, my name is Catherine. What's yours? Judge. My name is Elliot. Remote. Well, it's nice to meet you, Elliot. Did you see that story on CNN last night about the lesbian couple who came out at a White House party on Sunday? Judge. Yes, I did. I think it may all be a publicity stunt for Ellen. Remote. Ellen DeGeneres was one of them. She was kissing her lover in front of Bill Clinton. Do you think he was very embarrassed? Judge. I think he wants the gay vote. He will do anything to get it and keep it. He does not have a conservative base. Remote. Are you still a friend of Bill Clinton? Judge, I'm not sure if he has any real friends. He's achieved a lot, and he's left a lot of people behind. Remote, you really don't like the guy. Well, at least that's definite. I thought most people were just indifferent or numb by now. Judge, I think we could have a more honest and dynamic leader. And it, it continues on from here. Um, so I have to say, this really goes down in the history of the Turing test, which is in many cases, a lot of small talk about the weather and the commute. Um, as one of the most trenchant and focused and uh, you know, sustained threads of conversation in the whole history of the, of the Turing test. Which is why it's so surprising that Catherine is in fact a computer. Um, specifically, she is a program called Converse. Um, which has basically been designed to talk about one thing and one thing only, the second term presidency of Bill Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> now fortunately in this particular case, the program scored a total home run because that just so happened to be all that the judge also wanted to talk about. <laughs> um, this, this being you know, the late 90s, I suppose that's somewhat understandable, but um, what happens I mean, as I, as I read through this conversation, it seemed unbelievable to me that a computer could manage that kind of a conversation. Um, but the real telltale comes out when the same program is then in a later round paired with a judge that has absolutely no interest in politics. And you can see what that looks like. Remote. Are you still a friend of Bill Clinton? Judge. Nah, never met him. Remote, you really don't like the guy. Well, at least that's definite. I thought most people were just indifferent or numb by now. Judge, have you seen the movie Mars Attacks? <laughs> Remote, give me a break. I'm just here to answer dumb questions, not that. What were we talking about? Oh, okay, I guess that means that you think there's really something serious behind the uh, whitewater allegations. Um, and so basically anything that comes up that doesn't have to do with the second term presidency is just sort of brushed off. Um, which I think is a great irony, because many politicians, in fact, talk exactly like that. <laughs> um, which, which, to my mind, is sort of the, deep, the deeper point here, which is that um, you know, we often have this experience of, you know, I think politics is a particularly egregious example, where you see someone giving a speech, and the question in your mind is, is this really that person talking? Or is this person reading something that you know, they're intern wrote, or their speechwriter wrote. Um, and as long as they're giving prepared remarks, you don't really get to know the answer. That it's only until you start sort of throwing curves at them and seeing how they react, that you start to get a sense of whether you know, the, the language that you've seen is 
actually coming from the human being in front of you, or whether it's coming through some more indirect means. Um, so, uh, in case you're curious whether I'm in fact the author of this book, or just a um, handsome American thespian who's been brought in to do the PR, um, you won't really get a good answer to that until the Q&A. So um, you'll have to give me some really good questions so that I can assure you that, in fact, this is me. Um, I think it also really illustrates one of the great trade-offs of bot programming, which is that um, typically bot programmers have to make a, a major choice really early on in the construction of the chatbot, which is the breadth of the responses and the coherence of the responses. So the Catherine program is a great example of what you think of as the sort of interactive novel approach to chatbot writing, where a bunch of programmers get together and they say, okay, we want to create a sort of character. Um, who is this person? What are the kinds of things they would say about X, Y, and Z? And in many cases, they spend literally months generating this massive script. And it's sort of like a more um, computational version of like one of those choose-your-own-adventure books. I don't know if they have that in England. Okay, we have that. Um, and the disadvantage is exactly what you saw, which is that you can only prepare so much in advance. And one of the great amazing things about conversation is its ability to go off in a seemingly random direction you know, at, at any moment. Um, and in fact, one, one of the decisions that the organizers of the Logan Prize made really early on to try to make it a little bit more of a fair fight between the computers and the humans was to restrict the conversations by topic. Um, part of the problem that they ran into was that conversation is so sort of leaky that it's almost impossible to even define rigorously what a topic is. So for example, one of the programs was talking about ice hockey. Um, and the judge started to mention there was, there was the famous gold medal hockey match between the United States and the Soviet Union in 1980 at the Olympics. And you know, it was up to the organizers to decide, well, are we still talking about hockey, or have we now started talking about Cold War politics? Um, and they basically just gave up, partially because it was kind of philosophically impossible to do that. Um, but it really illustrates one of the great qualities of, of human conversation, which is that um, no matter how much you prepare, you so often find yourself in this totally unforeseen territory. Um, and that turns out to be really crucial when going up against a different kind of bot, which um, we'll get to in a second. Um, so if you're willing to make the trade-off of giving up some of the kind of coherence or integrity of your, of your bot's persona in exchange for the ability to talk about a wider range of things, there's another approach you can take. And probably the best exemplar of the second approach is a program called Cleverbot. So has anyone, is anyone familiar with the Cleverbot website? Okay, I have a couple nods. When I talk to people who are younger than 16, like 90% of them know what it is, which is a little bit terrifying. But, um, so you can think of Cleverbot in some ways as, uh, as being analogous to like a Martian that's been dropped onto the earth with no notion of how humans communicate, but is trying to sort of blend in. And the main weapon in this Martian's arsenal is a giant notepad. In fact, it's infinite. Um, and the Martian walks down the street and bumps into someone, and the person says, oh, hi. And the Martian sort of notes on his notebook, okay, humans appear to start conversations with hi. Like, okay. 
keeps walking down the street, bumps into someone else. Hi! And the person says, oh, hi, how are you? And it notes, humans, if you say hi to them, will say something like, hi, how are you? And puts it back. Um, it seems extremely painstaking, which of course it is. Um, but as it turns out, if you put a software program on the internet that's operating in this way, and you let it more or less hang out and talk to whoever shows up, um, and in the case of Clever Buy, there's something like several thousand people a day, um, many of them under 16, apparently. Uh, it starts to build an absolutely staggeringly huge database of things that people say in response to other things that people say. And when you're interacting with it, it can be extremely uncanny. So I'll give you some examples. Um, a part of my preparation for the Turing test involved um, going to the Cleverbot website and talking to it um, as a way of trying to sort of size up my competition. Of course, the danger is that I'm aware that all the while everything that I say to it is only adding you know, fuel to its fires. It's being logged in this giant database that will then be used against me uh, when I go to Brighton. So you know, I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit cautious. But um, it's really shocking what it's able to respond to. So I ask it, uh, what, what country is Paris in? It says France. Say, What's two times two? It says four. Um, so I try thinking of some, some slightly stranger things. I start telling it a joke. It anticipates the punchline. Um, I start sort of singing along random song lyrics, and it will sing, sing carry the song on uh, with me. So uh, if you know the, um, the Queen song, Bohemian Rhapsody. So I say to Cleverbot, Scaramouche, Scaramouche, and it replies, will you do the Fandango? <laughs> um, and it just seems like there's nothing that this program can't do. And um, in fact, just to see uh, if its capabilities extend into other languages, um, I don't actually speak French, but I thought, well, maybe I'll mess with it by speaking some French. So I say to it, um, je habite dans les États-Unis, um, which means I live in, well, it's a ungrammatical way of saying I live in the United States. And Cleverbot replies, on the j'habite aux États-Unis. So <laughs> it uh, not only understands what I'm saying, but it condescendingly corrects my grammar. <laughs> so I mean, there is really this unnerving sensation uh, that there must be some kind of person on the other end. Um, but if you bring up very specific types of Topics. You find, in fact, that it's not that you aren't talking with a human, but it's that you are not talking with a human. Because Cleverbot's database is cobbled together out of this massive you know, array of conversations. Um, and in fact, that turns out to be extremely crucial. Uh, for example, if you ask Cleverbot about its love life. So I asked Cleverbot, do you have a boyfriend? Not at the moment but I hope to find one soon. So I venture, I would like to be your boyfriend. <laughs> Cleverbot says, that would be difficult since I'm happily married. <laughs> so I thought, that's odd. So I ask again for clarification. You know, do, do you have a boyfriend? No, I'm still looking for love. Do you have a husband? I don't have a husband because it would be illegal for me to have one since I am male. Hot male. So I say, what gender are you? Female. And 
And so once again, uh, just for good measure, I say, do you have a boyfriend? Not at the moment, but I live in hope. Can I be your boyfriend? No, I'm straight. <laughs> um, and so you start to get the sense that it's, it's precisely this cohesion of identity, which is the missing piece from Cloverbot. And of course, you know, part of what we want when we talk to each other is not simply a generically human response to our question, but a response that comes specifically from the person that we're talking to. Um, so when we go to the movies with someone and we're walking out, we say, well, what did you think? And we don't want to know what someone thought of the movie. We want to know what they thought of the movie. Um, and so this turns out to be a huge chasm when it comes to developing artificial intelligence. Um, one of the other properties that tends to define, you know, one of the, one of these sort of Achilles heels of, of chatbots uh, is this concept called statelessness. Um, the basic idea is that if a conversation is what's called stateless, then it means that the appropriate remark is only dependent on the last thing that was said in the conversation. So one of the classic examples of stateless conversation uh, would be like a, a trivia game show. Or if I ask you some question, you know, when was Louis XIII coronated? Well, you don't need to know what we were talking about previously. That question contains everything you need to know, and you answer it, and then you sort of move on. And we can rearrange the order of the questions, we can add some, subtract some, and it's not going to change what the right answers are. Um, the other, as it turns out, the other classically stateless form of human conversation is verbal abuse, um, or what uh, internet users will know as flame wars. Is this a familiar, is this a term that they have in England? Flame wars? Okay, some people are nodding, some people are thinking. There's this uh, phenomenon that is, I think, pretty special to the internet, where someone will write this really long article, and then someone else will come on and say, Oh, you're an idiot. That's ridiculous. It's trolling. Uh, trolling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and basically, the, the, the whole conversation almost immediately descends into name-calling. Um, and then you get to the bottom of reading through this whole thing, and you don't even remember what the original article was about. Um, it just descends into this, like, I'm going to zing you, and then they react to that by zinging me back. And... Um, it basically loses any sense of the, the arc of the conversation. It just becomes this kind of stateless, knee-jerk verbal reaction to the, last, the very last thing that was said. Um, and so there are some famous chatbot victories at luring people into speaking in exactly this way. So in, in the late 80s, there was um, a University College Dublin undergraduate named Mark Humphreys who had developed a program uh, this chat, stateless chatbot program that would uh, basically function as a kind of answering machine. If he was not on the computer and someone messaged him, then this program, which was called MGONS, would kind of field those messages for him. Uh, well, the, the critical thing about MGONS was that it was designed basically as a verbal abuse chatbot. <laughs> um, no matter what you said, it would say something like, oh, come on, type something interesting or shut up. Um, or you're obviously an idiot. Uh, these sorts of things. And what Mark Humphreys 
found, sort of to his delight slash horror, was that people would talk to M. Gans for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one day he, he leaves the office and a, a user, he, it's, never, it's never been found out, this is one of the great you know, stories of the AI literature, but no one has ever stepped forward to claim that they were actually this person. But um, a user from Iowa, an Iowa IP address, messages Mark Humphreys with the word finger, which is this early era internet command. It's just sort of like, who are you? What's your deal? Um, to his surprise, the program immediately writes back, cut this cryptic shit, talk in full sentences. Um, and this begins an argument between this Iowan and MGONS that lasts for 90 minutes. <laughs> So I have to say, now when I find myself, you know, in situations where the rhetoric starts to get a little bit heated, um, or you know, there starts to be this kind of tension, um, I'm, I use MGONS as sort of a cautionary tale that I'm able to remember the comparative mathematical crudeness of that type of dialogue, and um, sort of shamefully wanting not to act like a bot, I'm able to sort of steer the conversation in a much more <coughs> constructive direction. Um, so as it turns out, saying things like, how so? Or in what way? Or what makes you say that exactly? Um, are extremely, extremely devastating if you're dealing with a uh, stateless conversation program. Because it's only looking at the last thing you said. So if you say, how so? Uh, you pull the rug totally out from under it. Um, so you can, you can have a little bit of extra satisfaction when you uh, constructively resolve conflict in your daily life, that you're using a more mathematically sophisticated approach to language. Um, the last computer technique that I want to uh, talk about is something that's called the book. So one of the anecdotes that I discuss in, in the course of, the, of this book with a lowercase b um, is the day that Checkers died, which was in 1863 in Glasgow, Scotland. The Checkers World Championship was being contested between James Wiley and Robert Martins. Um, and they were to play a 40-game series over eight weeks. By the end of the 40-game series, the score was tied. Zero wins, zero losses, and 40 draws. Um, and in fact, 21 of the 40 games had been the exact same game. Um, literally, the exact sequence of moves was played 21 times out of the 40-game uh, World Championship. So you can only imagine how upset the sponsors were um, in terms of the, the kind of excitement that this match was generating. Um, and basically, the, the problem was that the theory of checkers had gotten so developed it was so widely known amongst the top players what the appropriate moves were um, that they simply didn't play other moves. And checkers basically got reduced to a single game. Um, if you look at high-level chess, uh, fortunately for human chess aficionados, the same thing has not yet happened to high-level chess because the, there are just so many more permutations. Um, but there's essentially a very similar process, which is that when top-level players get together, um, and, and play, 
the first few moves of the game are completely predecided because, of course, uh, every game has to begin in exactly the same way. There are only a finite number of moves you can make. And so no matter what you do, you find yourself in a position that has been widely studied for you know, at least 100 years. And this process more or less continues uh, for a number of moves until at some point in the game, hopefully, uh, you do something which is called getting out of the book, which is that you finally, at long last, steer the game to a position that has never occurred before in the history of chess. And so grandmaster level chess play is all about trying to force the game to get out of the book. And in many cases, um, commentators and fans and so on do not even really consider the game to have begun until it gets out of the book and reaches this totally unique position. Um, effectively, when you're doing battle in a Turing test against a program like Cleverbot, which is a massive record of all of these conversations that have been had before, what you need to do in order to win is get Cleverbot out of the book. And as it turns out, it's actually not so straightforward to try to steer a conversation to a place that has not come up ever in 15 years of it talking to hundreds of people a day. Um, it's, very, it's comparatively easy to make a sentence that's never been said before. Um, which is one of the great things about language. But in a conversational setting, you don't want to seem too strange, or else then you start raising flags for the judge. Um, but for me, one of, the, one of the great challenges was trying to figure out how to get the conversations out of the book. So my, my very first conversation, the judge opens with, hey, how's it going? And my reaction was, no, you fool. That's exactly what everyone says at the beginning of every conversation. Um, you're playing totally into the preparation of the bots. Um, and in some ways, I felt that the, the real struggle for me as a confederate um, was not, not simply a matter of uh, you know, doing combat against these software programs, but I was essentially doing combat against the history of human conversation. Um, and uh, one, one of the things that, you know, so that, that became one of the real goals, was to figure out how to do that. Um, incidentally, one of the anecdotes in the book is, is I, I briefly delve into the history of speed dating. Um, because I, in some ways, think of speed dating as a kind of parallel to the Turing test, where you have these two strangers that are just sort of thrown together. They don't know anything about each other. They have five minutes. And it's this sort of weird, high-pressure chit-chat where you you really want to try to convey something of your distinct individual personality. Um, but you find yourself stuck asking these very generic questions that you know the other person has been asked by everyone else they've talked to that night, and they're asking you the questions that everyone else has asked you. And there's this real sort of anxiety over trying to figure out how to get somewhere fresh. Um, and what I think is really sort of ironic is that the approach taken uh, by the checkers community to save the game of checkers is the same approach taken by the inventor of speed dating, who happens to be a um, Los Angeles rabbi, um, in, order to <laughs> in order to salvage speed daters from a series of talking about you know, your job and your hometown. Um, it was essentially the same solution, which was that um, they would ban the starting position. So 
modern, since the 1880s, all high-level checkers tournaments have begun literally with drawing moves out of a hat. Um, getting the forcing the players to open the game in a way that they normally wouldn't. Forcing the, the game to get out of book, and then, then they let the humans sit down and actually play checkers. Um, and so the, the rabbi uh, who invented speed dating, his solution to save people from this endless series of self-similar questions was that any time a question came up more than four or five times in a speed dating session, he would make it forbidden at the next week's event. So first off the list was you could not ask someone what they do for a living. The next off the list was you cannot ask someone where they're from. Um, and so on and so on. And basically just forcing people to come up with other unique ways of trying to size up what, what someone's personality is like. Um, to, to great success. I mean, there's a certain anxiety of trying to come up with something that original, but once you do, um, it's much more effective at, at getting a sense of who a person is. Um, which, which kind of gets us into the, the second half of the preparation, which I'll, I'll talk about a little bit more briefly. Um, but of course, the other, the other side of the equation is not merely how are these chatbots constructed, but it's also what does it look like when we're talking to each other? Um, and so for me, one of the, the great strange things about thinking about the Turing test in 2011 is that even if there are people you know, in the room who have never heard of the Turing test before today, um, in fact, to be alive in the 21st century is to be participating in Turing tests absolutely all the time. So I think it's become a more or less universal experience that uh, you get an email from a long, a long lost friend, you know, an old school friend, and you're thinking, oh my god, it's so wonderful to hear from this person. You know, I wonder what they're up to. And you open the message, and they say, hey, I've just heard about these exciting new pharmaceutical discounts. Like, <laughs> these prices are unbelievable. Check this out. Um, that unfortunately, I think this has become like the reality of, of what it means to have an email account. Um, is that effectively what you're doing when you read emails is you're sitting in the seat of a judge at the Turing test. You're saying, is this really my friend or is this a computer program pretending to be my friend? Um, so there's this very strange sense in which these become practical life skills. Um, and so I, I find that now when I want to send a link to someone that I want them to click, you know, I'll find an article online and I'll think, oh, I bet you know, Sarah would really like this. My first temptation is just send a link. And then I'm like, oh no, I should, I should just say something. And I'll say like, hey, I thought you'd really like this. And then I'm like, no, that's too generic. I'm sure like there are bots that are just sending millions of links a day that just say, hey, I thought you'd like this. So it literally forces me into the position of having to humanize the message and be like, okay, I'm gonna need to talk in a Brian way in order for this person to even click the link. Um, so I think we're in this very strange situation where chatbots and, and spam bots have gotten not yet to a level where they are in fact indistinguishable from us. But just at this very, I think, intriguing middle level where they're just good enough that they force us to always try. That we can't simply um, you know, phone it in. We have to actually personalize this message if we want it to be kind of uh, trusted. Uh, so these questions 
of verbal style and, and sort of identifying yourself in this unique way, the idiosyncratic verbal style. Um, it was always something that poets were interested in, um, and it was always sort of a question of etiquette. Uh, but now it's actually a part of online security, that you, you have to talk like yourself if you want your messages to get through. Um, the, other, the other way in which we find ourselves sort of doing battle with um, artificial intelligence algorithms is when we send text messages. So you've probably had that experience of mistyping a word and it sort of automatically corrects your spelling. Um, so far, so good. But the dark side of these algorithms is that you often sometimes find yourself typing a perfectly legitimate word only to have it swapped out um, without your consent and another word is, is said instead. And this sort of like overly helpful algorithm changes what it is that you're trying to say. So there are these very famous um, examples of this. So I, probably the worst that I'm aware of is a woman had sent a message to her kid saying, um, we're going to Disney this weekend, but it didn't recognize the proper noun Disney and it replaced it with the word divorce. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, less dramatic examples abound. So in my own life, I, um, a couple months ago, I had to explain to someone that I wasn't going to be coming to some event. And I was trying to write that I was feeling slightly ill. And for some reason, it decided that when you, whenever you type I-L-L, you mean like, I'll, capital I apostrophe. And so I had sent this totally ridiculous message that was like, I'm a little bit I'll. I don't know if I can come. Uh, and so my, my gut instinct when I find myself in these situations is just, just kind of like give way um, to the technology and say like, okay, fine. I happen to really like the word ill, but like have it your way, I'll say sick. Um, but in the context of something like the Turing test, I think it really illuminates what the danger is in that which is that once we start to kind of strip out the lexical idiosyncr idiosyncrasies that distinguish us from one another, we make it much easier for technology to come in and pretend to be us. Um, so uh, I, I do try to exhort readers in the book to, uh, if you find yourself butting heads with your phone, don't give in. <laughs> Keep fighting. Um, Lastly, uh, the other side of cell phone usage is obviously making phone calls on your cell phone. Um, when we, as a society, moved from landlines to cell phones, uh, we made a trade-off that I don't think very many people realized that we were making. Uh, and that trade-off is 500 milliseconds. So specifically, when you're talking to someone on a landline, the lag or the latency on the line is 100 milliseconds or a tenth of a second. So if you stop talking, they will know that you've stopped talking in a tenth of a second, which for, for most intents and purposes is basically instantaneous. If you're talking to someone on a cell phone, the lag is 600 milliseconds, six times as great. And so if you stop talking and then they react by starting to say something, uh, it will be a minimum of 1.2 seconds before you're, you become aware of that. Um, and so, in fact, part of what we've given up in moving to this cell phone culture um, is a very specific kind of timing ballet, which I think infuses a lot of uh, real-world interactions. So we've all had that experience um, 
You know, most most dinner conversations are unlike um, in a formal Q and A, for example. It's not always clear who's supposed to talk. There may be weird, awkward moments where no one's talking, and you're asking yourself, "Well, should I step in and say something? Uh, should I wait?" Um, I don't really have anything that interesting to say, but if no one else does either, then maybe this is the best we've got right now, and we'll take it from there. <laughs> um, and when other people are talking, all of a sudden you get this really amazing idea, and then you're faced with that decision of, do I just cut in and say it? Do I let them finish? But then the conversation might sort of wander away, and now my thing isn't relevant anymore. So, or do I try to like very quickly make my remark, and then let them finish afterwards? Um, these all become like very legitimate negotiations that we have to make when we interact with each other in real life. Um, and one of my favorites is, is the, when someone asks you a question and you start to give an answer, and you pause for this very specific amount of time, which signifies, I can be done talking if you feel satisfied with what I've said so far. Here's an opportunity for you to say something else. But if you're going to hesitate, or if you're not satisfied with the completeness of the answer, I'm going to just keep going and pick back up. Um, that, that a part of what it means to have certain kind of social grace in real life is the management of these tenths of a second. Um, and what we've lost in, uh, you know, communicating over text messages, over emails, and now even over cell phones, is we've, we've lost some of the, the timing ballet. Um, so the way that this played in for me in the Turing test was that the Turing test operates using a very unusual protocol, which is unlike traditional instant messaging where you only see what's been typed when they hit the return key. Um, in the Logner Prize, you can see what they're typing with every keystroke. So you can see their typos, you can see them backspace, you can see them sort of change what they're trying to say. And in this way, it makes it much more like oral dialogue. Um, and so I found myself very deliberately trying to make life as difficult for the bots as possible because it's, it's already difficult for them to figure out what to say. But if you then impose the burden of trying to figure out when to talk, when to sort of yield the momentum back to the other person, or if you create a, si a silence where it's not clear who's supposed to speak up, um, you create this additional level of complexity that generally swamps them. Uh, and so it was part of my strategy to try and bring that sort of timing complexity into the Turing test. And so if the judge would start typing something, uh, but garble a word, pretty much I knew what word he was trying to type. And so I would do what happens in, a, in an oral conversation when someone's fumbling for a word. Um, you just finish the sentence for them. You know, it's, it's part of social grace. And so one of the judges said, you know, how are you doing T-D-A-Y backspace backspace back? Instead of waiting for him to sort of painfully retype the word, I was just like, I'm good. Um, and I would, I would also do that thing where I'd, I'd answer his question, and if he wasn't typing any other question, I would just keep going and give him a, another opportunity in a few seconds to then uh, redirect. Um, and that, I think, was one of the, the surprising finds, was that a lot of the complexity in human conversation is not what to say, but when to talk. Um, so just by way of ramping up, I, I also want to touch on what I think is the broader historical significance of something like the Turing test. Um, and the way that I think it becomes relevant for people who are in, maybe not even interested in technology itself per se, so much as in, in philosophy. Um, 
which is that one of the longest running and longest standing questions in, in the history of philosophy is what is it that makes humans unique and different and special? And if you go back over the history of, of Western thought anyway, um, people like Aristotle and Plato and Descartes have typically turned to the animal kingdom and said, okay, well we can begin to answer this question of what makes humans special by looking at what makes us different from animals. And uh, they also have this agenda which is to prove that we have souls and animals don't. Um, but really the tack that they take is to put all of their kind of philosophical chips on rationality and say, well, we know that animals can navigate three-dimensional space, they can set goals, they can plan things, uh, they can react in real time, they have motor control, they can sort of run across the, you know, the woods and dodge branches and eat prey and recognize their friends and form social groups. All of that must be terribly unimpressive. We can do things like algebra. Um, and and they're, they're, I think from the very beginnings in, in, the, in antiquity becomes this, what I see as being a distorted uh, emphasis placed on you know, cold, procedural, objective reason. You know, analytical and mathematical, that's that very type of thinking. Um, and so the great irony, I think, if you look at the 20th and the 21st century, is we've developed the computer, which does exactly that type of thing. And in fact, it does it better than us. So we're not only no, uh, so not only are we no longer the only beings that can do algebra, uh, we are by no means the best. Um, I, my mathematical skills were, you know, I, I did well in high school, but I am nothing compared to my phone at this point. Um, and so, and, and we find ourselves much more invested in thinking about what makes us different from machines than we are in what makes us different from animals. And I think the other upshot is that the history of AI has shown us that many of these skills that were previously written off are in fact some of the most complicated things that happen when we go through our daily lives. Um, that, you know, as you're, you're walking down the street and you're sort of trying to plan your way through the city, um, dodging other pedestrians and stepping over cracks and you think you glimpse someone that seems familiar and then you realize, oh yeah, it's that guy Dave from my, you know, philosophy seminar, um, you know, years ago, and so you strike up a conversation and say, you know, what have you been up to in the past few years? And he has, he has this sort of impossible task of compressing, you know, tens of thousands of hours of experience into like a two-second uh, soundbite. Um, that, in fact, the cognitive and computational complexity of these things far outweighs, as it turns out, uh, long division and calculus and factoring huge numbers and playing grandmaster chess. Um, that I think that's one of the great validations that artificial intelligence has given us. That I think it it enables us to feel a little bit more comfortable with ourselves as animals um, by validating some of these more animal-like skills of you know recognizing objects, recognizing people, uh, moving our bodies to navigate the physical world. Um, as being some of the most complex things that we do. So there's this great sort of unsung complexity to everyday life. And I think, you know, we're seeing the same thing with conversation, where 
we've, for many years, linguists have thought of conversation as this sort of pure data transfer where you're always speaking in grammatically correct sentences. Uh, Noam Chomsky has this famous sentence from 1950 that says, you know, we're not interested in mistakes, ungrammatical sentences, sentence fragments. We're not interested in people cutting each other off. We're not interested in your shifts of attention. We're not interested in differences in fluency where one person knows a word that the other doesn't. We're not interested in cultural or conceptual differences where one person's talking about something the other person doesn't understand. We're just interested in like real language. Um, but you know, you can start to sense that in fact almost everything that he's written out of the picture is are, are many of the very forces that animate human conversation. Um, and so these sort of simplified models of what interaction is become kind of crystallized and embodied in these computer programs. And so I was, I was asked once by an engineering school, you know, what's your beef with computers? Why are you so obsessed with trying to defeat the computers? Like, what have they ever done to you? And um, it's not so much that I, I dislike computers at some inherent level, as I think that what they represent are the, the previous theories that we have about ourselves. Um, if you go back over the history of philosophy, um, you find that to some extent the computer is only one in a long line of things that we've analogized ourselves to. So before the computer, we thought of the brain as a telephone switchboard or an electronic relay, um, electrical relay, I should say. Before that, we thought of the mind as all these gears turning. And before that, we thought of the mind as these pneumatic steam valves. Um, it's very sort of amusing if you go back and read some of that. Um, to some extent, the computer is merely the latest in the things that we reckon the mind is like. Uh, but I think there's a critical difference, which is that we've actually created the computer in our own image. It embodies all of our ideas about how we think. Um, and so that sense, I get really excited uh, to look at these failures and gaps and this sort of process of iteratively um, going back to the drawing board, because I think each of the times that we compare our ideas about ourselves against our actual self, and the ideas come up short and there's this gap, um, I think that gap always has something to teach us about who we are. So I'll leave it there, and I'm happy to take questions you guys have. Well, thank you very much. completely understand everything about ourselves <coughs> fills me with a, a great sense of like ennui. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, at a personal kind of emotional level, I do get very energized with the, the sense of wonder that not knowing brings. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's very interesting, like, one of the early paradigms in AI was uh, this notion of thinking of the mind as basically a giant flow chart. 
So when you approach a problem like doing calculus, you know, what's the decision process? Well, okay, first I need to find out if it's in a one variable or two variables, you know, and then I need to do this and that. Uh, and we can build a program that completely embodies that. Um, and so with the early success of this style of um, what's called good old-fashioned AI, which was the, sort of the first wave, uh, there were a bunch of early successes that led, led people to have this very bullish feeling, like, cool, well, we're going to have the whole mind figured out in like five, ten years. Um, and obviously that didn't happen. Uh, this was like the early 60s. Um, and part of it was that we discovered that there's this huge class of problems that do not work that way. So when you recognize someone, you don't go through this decision process of, okay, you know, I came home and there's a woman there. Is this my partner? Okay, well, she had red hair, so, all right, check. Um, uh, that's simply not the way that the mind works in, in a lot of these tasks. Um, and so part of what the computer science community has done is drawn on neuroscience. So instead of, basically, instead of representing the mind, the conscious decision process, let's represent the biological level. And so it led computer science into this area called neural networks, which are basically software programs that represent neurons that are firing into each other and causing other neurons to fire. Um, and so on this topic of, of mystery, I think one of the intriguing results of neural network computing is that you can use neural networks to solve some of these more sort of gestalty, um, intuitive type problems. Um, the really hard thing is debugging them because it's really not clear how neural networks actually work. Uh, you can train them to do something, um, but if you look at an individual level, you can't debug them the way you can debug a program and be like, ah, this is the line that's wrecking everything. Um, because once, I mean, partially the move from normal programming to neural networks uh, involves giving up meaning. You have to move to this representation where uh, there are a bunch of neurons, some of them seem to be firing, others aren't, but it's not like this neuron means that the person has red hair, or this one doesn't. Um, and so, on the one hand, we've learned something in that we have a new model that can solve problems the old model can't. But in doing that, we've lost the ability to really understand how the model's functioning. Um, so, yes, I, this may be my romantic side, but I do find that rather exciting. Okay. Question over there, and um, do you like what we have? Yeah. Um, um, this gentleman behind you first. Then you're next. So, um, you know, a bit about the speech correction thing. It's not, you know, like if you have a Jungian unconscious, collective unconscious, then these are like Jungian slips rather than Freudian slips. I mean, they're slips oh, which yeah. are part of the, you know, when the text message autocorrects, they're corrects which the general, correction of the general mind would make rather than your specific one. And so it's mm -hmm. kind of a bit alienating to have other people's uh, parapraxis slips of the tongue in your own mouth, as it were, or in, in your own fingers. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But, but, I, but I think this is like, I mean, I think you're slightly in danger of sounding like the kinds of people who, who thought that people who don't talk proper and use ain't and, or, or you know, use patois or working class dialect or whatever have a less sophisticated grammar than those of us who speak correctly. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, as I understand it, being disproved. I mean, it's different, but there's no less complexity or range of expression. And I mean, you know, I, I take it from the fact that I'm still somewhat mystified by the etiquette of texting, that it must be, you know, I can fuck up just as badly in that realm as I can <laughs> in common speech, that yeah. there must be a level of richness about it. And so there is a danger of sounding slightly folkish in, 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 in describing these kind of computer-based text-based interactions as being uh, thinner, you know, less rich, mm -hmm. offering mm -hmm. fewer possibilities. I just think they offer different possibilities which, you know, perhaps on a generational level, 
you know, we're finding it harder to master, and perhaps that's kind of why they were put there, is just to make uh, us feel yes. old. You know, this idea that, you know, there's slips of the tongue, but it's there are other people's slips that are in your mouth. I mean, there, there is a weirdness to that. I think it's very, very correct. Um, and, and the point that you're raising about um, really hegemony, right? So the, the autocorrection algorithm is a classic example of hegemony, which is like, we here at Apple Computing have decided that here's how people talk. And if you don't talk like that, tough. Um, and yes, you find that the, the less that you sound like an Apple software engineer or a Microsoft software engineer, the more trouble you get into. Um, and uh, yeah, that's very, very to the point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was um, the point you made at the end about the thing that can make us seem very human is our, our, our sort of gaps and inconsistencies and our non sequiturs and, and uh, the sort of illogicality of conversation flow. And is there, firstly, is there not a danger that those things can be captured and um, used to create that personal humanness of a computer? Uh, and the second point is that in the same way that, a, a, for example, a, a caricature or a cartoon of, of an individual in no way looks real, mm -hmm. but at the same time, in those three lines that that person has drawn, it captures something essential about their personality and who they, who they are. Could you not argue that in a sense if a computer program can do that, it creates a, called a sort of quintessence of humanity even though it is totally artificial. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to the, to the first question about um, mistakes, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, the chatbot developers have added code to their programs that make them fake typos, um, which is just, it's one of those things that you have to get used to if you're in the Turing test, but it's very uncanny when you see it. Um, and, uh, sorry, I just, I lost my train, which is this. I'll write it off well, as being Partly it was the inconsistencies and the non-sectors, and the second point was about their caricature in a oh, yeah. kind of a has a reality. Yeah, yeah, so there's this great concept that comes from computer graphics called the uncanny valley. Is that a familiar term? Okay, I'm getting a mixture. So uh, one of the very strange results that they've found in uh, computer-generated graphics is that there's a really odd-looking curve if you map. So if we had a map of the lifelike quality of the computer graphics on our x-axis and the empathy that we feel for the character, um, generally we would assume that it would look like that, where this would be someone who looks totally indistinguishable from a person, and this is just like a dot. Um, and so we've got, you know, stick figures, and then we have cartoon characters, <coughs> and then so on. Um, in fact, when they've done these studies, the, the graph looks like this. So there's this huge drop, um, which is known as the uncanny valley. Um, and you can basically think of like corpses and zombies, um, where they're so lifelike that it's really weird that they aren't more lifelike. Um, and one of the great... Uh, the great sort of strange things that's been happening in the world of computer movies um, 
is that the vast majority of our computer movies, like Toy Story, Finding Nemo, Cars, WALL-E, you notice that none of these things have human protagonists. And that's partly because they're afraid of falling into the uncanny valley. In fact, if you look at the humans in the movie Toy Story, they are absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, and one of the great mistakes was uh, a movie, I don't know if it even made it to England, but it was an American movie called uh, The Polar Express. Um, and so in, in, in the American press, it was referred to as the Zombie Express. <laughs> because you had these very human-looking people, but the facial expressions were just kind of dead, and the eyes were just sort of dead. Um, so in many ways, I think of chatbots as being akin to the conversational uncanny valley. Um, where if you, if you scroll a brief message up in like on a wall somewhere, that's sort of like here. And you can still sort of identify with the human that produced those words, um, even though it does not by any means replicate the experience of actually interacting with someone. Um, and then we'd have, you know, literature. And then chatbots are this very weird thing where they sound so much, it's so close to interacting with a person that it's really weird that it's not actually like interacting with a person. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely think that it fits onto this continuum, um, but it's a weird, it's a weird continuum. I know there's lots of questions. I want to slip in one question myself because yes. it just fits what you just said about empathy and this this uncanny valley. Because one of the things that you also talk about in the book is these uh, therapy programs. Yeah, and, uh, that's right. How interesting it is that people can actually find value, a theoretic, uh, theoretic value in communicating with a computer program. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if you had something to say about that, and especially since you had you just you know had this. Yeah. Yeah. Graph exactly. Um, well, very famously, the first chatbot ever written is a program called Eliza. Um, that was made by an MIT professor in the mid-60s as a parody of a non-directive Rogerian school therapist. So no matter what you would say, it would just say something like, oh, well, how did, how did you feel about that? Um, tell me more. Tell me about your family. Um, and um, it was really easy to rig it up programmatically. Um, and to Joseph Weizenbaum, the creator's horror, he would walk into his lab to find members of the MIT staff having the most intimate conversations <laughs> with this program. Um, and no matter what he did to convince them that it was like a simple, you know, it was written in about an hour with like a hundred <laughs> lines of code, they would say, well, I don't know that I believe you, but even if I do believe you, it doesn't matter because I really feel like I've made some progress. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, it, it completely horrified Joseph Weizenbaum, and he's this rare example in, in the world of AI, well, in, in, in academia, of someone who basically does an immediate about face. He cancels his own projects, he pulls his own funding, and goes from being one of the leading researchers of AI to being one of the most outspoken critics of AI, <laughs> which he is in, all the way until his death in 2008. Um, and he was absolutely horrified and basically said, you know, either there's something really wrong with these people or there's something really wrong with me having written this thing or there's something really wrong with psychotherapy. Um, a psych you know, what, what must a non-directive therapist think he's doing with a client if it can be mirrored you know, in a hundred line program? Um, the, for what it's worth, the psychotherapy community was not, was in fact rather enthusiastic about the idea of computer therapy. Um, 
And, uh, and it has kind of rippled into, into that field and, and caused them to ask these interesting ethical questions. Um, but it, yeah, it also, I think, raises this question of empathy, which is, well, if they're getting something out of it, well, then maybe that's okay. It does have a challenge, though, that your notion that you know, human interaction, human communication depends to a large degree on these little time delays, idiosyncrasies, you know, and that we can't get that in human-computer interactions. So it seems, it's amazing that, nonetheless, these people do feel that they actually get something out of those. Well, they're getting, they're getting themselves out of it. You know, they're not learning anything about the other person. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I don't have, I don't have any problem with the, the notion of Eliza as being a useful, um, you know, there are also uh, just books, you know, paperback books that say, like, read this book, it's like a, you know, it's like being in cognitive behavioral therapy. So it, it'll have these big blanks, and it's like, what are you most afraid of? And you fill it in or something, and you go to the next page, and it'll give you this exercise. Um, and you're basically being run it through this completely cookie-cutter method. But in fact, if you go to the Amazon page, you find literally hundreds of people being like, yeah, it, uh, it works. I don't know what to say. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there are examples of, of situations where interpersonal empathy is in fact not critical. Um, but, and, and maybe in the, in the therapist-client relationship that's okay, but we certainly don't want that from our, our uh, friends and loved ones and things. Um, so. Yeah, so that, that to me is a, is a difference. Yeah? Um, yeah, I think sooner or later computers are going to pass the Turing test. Probably, I think, most people think. Yeah. I mean, this, this, you know about LIDAR and the, the, these bots that um, show signs of consciousness, even arguably, now. So that's something, I, I think that's something to celebrate. Now, actually, I need to defend humanity against it, but how are we going to raise our game oh, yeah. when, these, when these things come along? Well, or are we, are we, are we, will we have to throw in the towel? I think, I mean, even your question itself makes a really critical point, which is that uh, we typically think of these man-machine challenges as this really once-and-for-all thing. You know, so once Gary Kasparov was beaten at chess by Deep Blue, uh, the IBM team was like, okay, we're done, and they immediately dismantle it, and that's the end of that. Um, and then in, in the States, the IBM's newest computer has recently beaten the human Jeopardy quiz show champions at, at a battle of trivia, um, and they've you know, immediately decided, okay, we're doing other things now. Um, and in fact, Hugh Loebner has said, you know, when the Turing test is passed, I'm going to take my disco dance floor money elsewhere. Um, you know, we've, we've done what we came here to do, and that's that. And in fact, I think that's a great mistake, because the Turing test um, is not this objective benchmark. It's, it's uh, a comparison against a moving target, which is our own ability to relate to each other. And so, in fact, I would be extremely exhilarated by the year after we lose the Turing test for the first time to see what exactly we do to try to raise the game. Um, I think one of the really defining features of human intelligence um, is that unlike animals which you know, need to spend hundreds or thousands of years of evolutionary time to develop claws, um, we can pick up a knife or put it down, you know, depending on whether we need to be cutting things. Um, unlike you know, toasters that have been painstakingly assembled only to toast, uh, we have this incredible flexibility to sort of take up skills 
forget about skills, learn new things, do new things. I, I think of that as being like that, that flexibility as being one of the critical things. And so our ability to react to a Turing test loss and sort of respond in some way. And I don't know exactly what form that would take, um, but I'd be really excited to find out. Um, surely flexibility is going to be written into computer programs. I mean, a computer can be anything. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's a critical you, point, yes. I mean, I, I think it is a matter of time before a lot of the, the abilities you talk about as being uniquely human, you know, even when you're talking about animal, animal um, intelligence, you know, recognizing the 3Ds, it's, it's surprised us how long it's taken for computers to, to catch up with some of these things and how, how much more complicated they are than we thought they were, things like face recognition. Oh, yeah. But it's surely a matter of time. I, I, I do agree with that. Um, I, I don't ascribe to any kind of deep metaphysical reason for thinking that there's something magic about neurons that no. will never be replicated with some other medium. So at that point, when you recognize that it, there is artificial intelligence, then you're going to have to be ready to, to embrace it. I mean, I th Yeah, I, I do agree, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, for people who are not as familiar, one of one of the things that you're talking about is this, the uh, computational principle of universality. So Alan Turing, in fact, very famously sets down this sort of jaw-dropping mathematical result, um, which is that once you create a computer of a certain kind of complexity, um, it can be transformed into any other type of computer. Um, and he calls these universal machines. And in fact, this is not some sort of sci-fi thing. All computers that we use are of that level, are universal machines. So the sort of Apple marketing rhetoric of, there's an app for that. Um, you want to know what the weather's like in Tokyo? There's an app for that. Um, all they're really doing is sort of making us excited about a principle that Alan Turing discovered like in the 30s, um, which is that uh, you don't, unlike when you buy a toaster or a bread knife or something like that, you don't need to know ahead of time what you want the device to do. You just get the device and then you figure out later what temporary roles you want it to take on and you just uh, you know, run the program that does that. Um, I, I do think that you know, ultimately we are going to reach a point where you have this sort of legitimate artificial intelligence. Um, for the purposes of the book, what I'm really interested in is the time period from sort of 2,000 years ago when you know, Aristotle and Plato started asking these questions to sort of the next five years. Um, because that, that for me seemed the most sort of juicy. But these questions of what happens in 50 years, you know, what's going on in, in a century from now, um, I think we will see some sort of legitimate artificial intelligence. But even so, I think it will be illuminating in these very interesting ways. Um, of things like what is, what is the role of embodiment, the human form, that uh, is the role that that plays on cognition. So I mean, we have the, the Jeopardy match was a really good example, where you have this computer that's this incredibly fast encyclopedia of all world knowledge, um, but it has no embodied experience. So it can tell you, you know, what year Louis III was coronated in. It can tell you, you know, the distance from Shanghai to, you know, Los Angeles in, in centimeters. You know, it can tell you just any any sort of fact. But if you ask it something like, okay, you're standing and you're looking at the railing and you look down, now what do you see? Um, it doesn't have the ability to feel a question like that because it doesn't have senses and it doesn't have a physical form. 
So that for me would be a really interesting question that would be raised, was once we have a sort of general intelligence, whatever that might be mean, meaning um, on par with our own, then we start to see the differences of the embodiment of the intelligence really come into play. And I'm not going to sort of chauvinistically say that like the human form is going to automatically be so much better than any other sort of form. But we, it will be yet another opportunity to sort of learn something about you know, what makes us who we are and what we are. That's a good question. Um, one of the things that's sort of come up in the history of the Turing test are these, these questions of what's a legitimate persona to create if you're a chatbot developer. Um, and one of the big concerns was over language. So they had, uh, in 2008, one of the programmers created a bot that claimed it was a 13-year-old Ukrainian immigrant that was just learning English. <laughs> and a lot of people sort of cried foul and said, well, Having an excuse that tells the judge why you have no idea what they're talking about is not the same thing as you know, trying to know what they're talking about. Um, and so I think the other deep question that's going on with this is that um, you know, the, the Turing test, there is a certain, we have to define the parameters of what kind of intelligence we're talking about. Part of what we need to talk about is what language is the Turing test going to take place in. And this alone turns out to be this really sticky question, um, because you can't even really dis disentangle language from culture. So I, as an American going to the Turing test, was very nervous that it would be held in England, because I had looked at one of the judges in 2008, only wanted to talk about the Turner Prize shortlist. Um, and I thought, I don't know what this is. I have to Google it. I, you know, I have nothing to say on this topic. Um, another judge had asked someone what their opinion was of Sarah Palin. And when the person replied, I don't know, I've never heard of her, he was like, oh, well, this is obviously a computer. No one in the English-speaking world doesn't know Sarah Palin. is ridiculous. Um, in fact, it was just some guy who just didn't know. That <laughs> um, yes. Um, but uh, I think the other question is, like, as you're, as you're thinking about you know, child development, um, you know, one of the other sort of famous jokes in the AI world is, um, Oh, I've, I've created a chatbot that perfectly mimics a catatonic. Um, it says nothing. Um, it it's passes the Turing test against real catatonics, because you can't tell which, <laughs> which is typing the nothing. Um, and, I, and I think that kind of gets part, part of what you're asking also, which is like, when we say intelligence, um, you know, how does that relate to the spectrum of you know, the ways in which brains function, either developmentally or the various sort of things that we would classify as cognitive disabilities um, or some just alternate ways of, of thinking. Um, that, yeah, I mean, I, I think all of these are, are questions that are sort of raised by the holding of the test. Yeah, uh, what did you want to follow up on that briefly? Um, if yeah. you have a different question. Um, just briefly, I was going to say, um, the point you raised about the methodology would be short list of topics and how Yeah, it's perfectly reasonable to expect humans to maybe feel slightly uncomfortable talking about one thing as opposed to another. Mm -hmm. uh, just reminds me of when you were talking about uh, the bot that was designed to talk about Bill Clinton and then 
suddenly asked to speak about something else. And I just thought, I've got lots of political hack friends who, if they were made to speak about anything other than that particularly narrow area of politics that they're really into or to talk about all day, probably would sound like a robot. Yeah. So it's a methodological thing there. Yes. I, yeah, on the topic of the uncanny valley, I would also put politicians. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay, I think that captions are really interesting on yes. the internet. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what, uh, if you have ideas of what's coming next after sort of like image recognition technology yeah. gets a little bit better. Yeah. Um, so uh, what she's talking about is probably something that's familiar to most people, though not necessarily by name. It's this thing called CAPTCHA, which is an acronym that means Computer Administered Public Turing Test for the, and then the, the acronym just goes on from there, but they stopped adding letters to it. Um, so someone uh, earlier this week was asking me, you know, what, what, would it, what would it be like if we had computers actually judging the Turing test? And I said, well, we do. Um, in fact, it's part of what it means to use the internet nowadays, where if you want to log in and sort of post a blog comment, uh, occasionally you'll see this little field that's like, here are a bunch of wavy, distorted letters. What letters are they? And you have to, is this a pretty familiar thing? Uh, basically, that's a kind of Turing test, which is prove that you're not a bot by doing something that currently only humans can do. And the, the thinking there is um, that if evil hackers are going to try to break this, they're at least going to have to do useful AI research to do it and develop image recognition, which we currently are still bad at. There's big money if they succeed, right? Well, uh, yeah, certainly, certainly. Uh, in fact, it, it, there's one of the things that I was talking about earlier is that um, there's this big difference between talking to a specific person and talking to a generic person. Um, CAPTCHAs suffer from this as a weakness, so one thing that spammers have now started doing is they'll create this um, high-traffic website, and by that I mean pornographic. And they will say, here's a bunch of free porn, all you need to do is fill out this CAPTCHA. And in, in effect, what's happening is their spam bot goes to a page, gets presented with an image recognition problem. Then they queue up that exact image recognition problem on their porn site. A human user says, okay, well, here's what that says. Now give me my free porn. And then they take that answer and they apply it to the original website and get through. Um, so it's, it's one of those great examples of, um, we, we may come to the point where a CAPTCHA uh, requires not only that you authenticate yourself as a human, but that you authenticate yourself as yourself. Um, and we may also, I mean, I was, I was playing an online uh, video game the other day. And I was uh, kind of idling for, for a while. I like went to eat a sandwich or something. And when I got back, one of the admins of the, that server had said, hey, I just want to say hi to you and see, just make sure you're not a bot. You're like exhibiting some weird behavior. Um, we have a policy that we like kick all the bots off the server. And I was like, no, nope, it's me. Sorry, I'm back. Um, and it occurred to me, uh, for one thing, uh, Oh, and then, then the, the server had this vote, which was like, vote to ban all the bots from the server. And I voted yes. And there were like five no votes, which I assume were the bots. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the, the thing for me was, all I had to do to authenticate myself on this particular server was say hi to this guy. Um, but are we going to get to the point where in order to like use computer technology, you need to participate in a fully-fledged Turing test just to leave a blog comment or to play some game online. Um, 
we may find that that's, that's where this arms race is going. Um, Do you think that's going to result in the loss of anonymity on the internet? Sort of like the way that Facebook and like LinkedIn make you sort of be an actual human being with friends? Yeah. In fact, one of my friends is one of the people that Facebook hired. And she spends all day going on people's profiles and making sure they're using a real name. So like one day she had to go through all the Michael Jacksons and like make sure that their name was actually Michael Jackson. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, we, we literally have these people policing, you know, against anonymity. I, I, honestly, I do think that internet security and these concerns of the fact that generic human beings are easier to mimic than specific human beings may force us to end that. Yeah. Okay. One last question. Um, I think we're almost out of time. So if you have. You have a brief last sure. question? No, I just meant to ask. Uh, when people are online, and presumably this test is just you know, instant messaging, people talk differently than they would if they were face-to-face. -face. So right. that must make it difficult, because you're not actually judging them on them being human in the sense of everyday interaction. You're judging them in terms of how they act when they're through this specific medium. How, how does that factor into the test as well? Uh, it partly factors in very strangely because um, the test occurs in a medium that we almost never use, yeah. which is live character by character typing. Um, I remember it from like the early 90s. They briefly tried to introduce it into this thing called IRC, which was the sort of chat. And people hated it. It was too invasive. You know, um, They liked that gap where you could compose a message and then send it. Um, and so, yeah, so the Loner Prize now takes place in this totally bizarre medium that is unlike anything we use. Um, I mean, I, I do think that's a factor. Um, and I think it's also a factor that so much of our communication is now mediated by computers that, in fact, it does kind of spill over and affect the way that we talk to each other in real life. I mean, in, in the most banal ways, but also, I think, in profound ways. So, like, people actually say BRB out loud. The whole point of the phrase BRB is that it's an abbreviation of a something that you say out loud. Um, and the whole point is that it makes it easier for typing purposes. It's not even any fewer syllables than saying be right back. It's the exact same amount of effort. Um, but you have this weird feedback process where um, we're our oral speech is now mimicking our typed speech rather than the other way. I mean, it's, it's a little bit distressing. Um, but, I but I think it's all part of this process of um, you know, needing to really be aware of the ways in which we interacted with each other and, and how technology is influencing that. So I, I desperately hope that I can still use the word ill out loud, even though I don't use it on my phone anymore. So I think we should all sort of just be attuned to that kind of thing. Okay, that, no, I'm sorry. Just I'll, I'll be hanging around at the table. So, so okay. Just because we have to make sure to, to finish our time. Uh, as I said earlier, you can get the book outside and Brian will be outside to sign it and you can ask your question there. Um, please join me in thanking Brian and thanks to you also for your great questions.